Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Plenty to cover over the course of this hour. We'll get to your phone calls as well. Uh, Certainly a big concern for Canadians, and it speaks to the larger problem of inflation, but specifically when it comes to housing. We've seen some pretty sharp increases in housing costs in Canada, which were already high to begin with. Now, there's some reports that, uh, at least in Toronto and Vancouver, we're starting to see a slowdown, maybe even a market correction. But obviously, those two markets remain by far the most expensive in the country. And I don't think we can just rely on uh, these kinds of corrections to, to address the problem. There is and remains an imbalance between supply and demand. So how do we fix that? Now, there's a lot of talk about fixing that. We certainly hear from various levels of government that, you know, making housing more affordable is a priority, but we don't really see any concrete steps being taken. Well, if governments are really interested in addressing this, there are some concrete steps they could take. Uh, a new report out today from the think tank SecondStreet.org uh, outlines some steps that uh, governments could take to really address, fundamentally address this imbalance and, and make housing more affordable. Now, there's steps for the federal government to take, obviously, at the more local level. Uh, there's work to be done. Again, you can read this report at uh, secondstreet.org. Joining us uh, to talk more about the report is its author, uh, policy analyst, author Mark Milk. He's also director, executive director of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, which is launching later this year. Uh, Mark, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, let me ask you first of all, then, about this idea that you know these market corrections are, are just going to to fix the problem. If we see housing prices leveling off in certain markets, that maybe it's not a concern anymore. But uh, it doesn't really address the the underlying issues here, does it? Well, I was a teenager in the early 1980s when interest rates went through the roof and home prices did crash. So it can happen, yeah. but. Um, whether it'll be that severe a correction or not. I mean, that's anyone's guess. I would say this, even if you have a correction as is occurring in Toronto or Vancouver, for for example, and you mentioned Toronto at the outset, it's dropped 13% there since March, about 178000 That sounds huge, except your average home price in Toronto, the composite home price, is still $1.1 million. Uh, and prices in Vancouver have dropped by 4%, about fifty grand, sixty grand, but still, you know, they're close to $1.1 million. So we're nowhere near affordability. Uh, so interest rates going up will have some effect or having some effect now on demand that will eventually filter down to price. But uh, on, the, on the flip side, you've also got plenty of demand, it seems, in the pipeline, so to speak. You've got 400,000 people uh, you know, coming to Canada every year. That's going to keep up demand for housing for some time to come. I mean, one of the interesting things in the report or you know, one of the things that, that was telling is Scotiabank has said for some time that we need 1.8 million new uh, units of housing in this country. Uh, that's what needs to be built to get back to a balanced market. So we're nowhere near a balanced market uh, in, in most metropolitan centers. Right. So it tells us the demand is there, but the supply is not. So why isn't there sufficient supply of housing in this country? Well, again, you've got a you've got a, a supply and demand imbalance. So you've got a lot of people coming in the country and on pro-immigration. So that's a good thing. We don't address immigration in the study, though. We do address the other side of the equation, though, where governments, you know, because the federal government can, you know. Um, raise immigration levels or, or depress immigration levels. That, that's up to them. But there's not much provinces can do about that or cities, and they may not want to for other reasons, right? There's a shortage of workers in some fields and so on and so forth. Rather than get into that, what, what, what I did in the study for Second Street is look at what governments can do in the short term to help prices and the long term. 
Um, and one of the things they can do in the short term is really watch their fees and taxes. A good example actually comes from Calgary. Uh, one of the things we, we looked at and found in terms of Calgary is that hidden taxes and fees in, uh, in Calgary are $450,000 per hectare. Well, that's double neighboring communities around here. So that tells you something about the affordability in Calgary itself, vis-a-vis uh, Cochrane, you know, vis-a-vis uh, Strathmore, vis-a-vis any of the suburban communities or outlying exurbs, as they're called. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that, that governments can do locally is, is watch their tax and fees levels. Uh, that's, that's part of the equation. Uh, that, that adds to home prices. Uh, there are other things they can do as well, um, and that includes looking at the GST. If you're the federal government, you could raise the threshold for GST on homes from $450,000 to $750,000. That would be about a $15,000 break. Um, assuming it gets passed on to consumers. But there were, there were those hidden costs in homes, new homes in the latter example, that matter and that do add to, to housing costs overall, which governments can do something about. Well, that's an important point because you're right. I mean, if governments are making houses more expensive than they need to be, that, that can fix that problem. But, you know, bringing that price down doesn't necessarily add to the supply, right? And in, in a way, maybe it, it could fuel demand. So when it comes to cutting red tape, making it easier to, to get new housing built, what do we need to see from governments in terms of actually addressing the supply side? Well, one of the things recommended in the study, and you can find it at secondstreet.org, is to have what I call kind of an onus, a reverse onus on government rather than the home builders, which is as follows. Um, governments across the country, you know, city governments are notorious in some cases for dragging out approvals for various reasons. So they don't have the proper staff. Uh, maybe the staff is working from home. Uh, whatever the reason is you want to, you know, suspect might, might be behind the, the slowdown in terms of approvals or they just can't keep up with all the, uh, all the uh, applications. What we recommend in the study is that there's a timeline for approvals and that your development would be automatically approved uh, within a certain timeline, that there'll be a legislated timeline and that civil servants have to approve your project or it becomes automatically approved. Uh, this is novel for Canada, but it's not actually novel in terms of, say, Europe. This is, this is a regulatory correction to, um, say, City Hall simply being able to uh, move at a snail's pace where that happens. Um, in Europe, there, there are regulatory penalties, um, not penalties, rather, but there are regulatory deadlines where you get approval for some uh, applications if you don't. Uh, if you as a city don't approve it in time. So that would be novel for Canada, but that's one way to push ahead development, which is to say, look, you really have to get on this, and if you have concerns about a particular development, uh, then make sure those are um, listed and, and, uh, and that the process moves forward in a quick fashion. Otherwise, there's, there's no incentive for governments to uh, move quickly or, or the civil servants within governments to move quickly. There's some overlapping jurisdiction here. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of this is at the local level. Some of this uh, taxation policy falls to provinces and into the federal government. I mean, is that part of the problem here, that there are too many levels of government? I don't know that we'd want to, you know, put all of this in the hands of the federal government, for example, but uh, does it lead to some buck passing? Well, you can't put it in the hands of the federal government in that sense. Again, they have, you know, control over one side, uh, immigration flows into the country. Uh, provinces and municipalities, though, have controls over uh, local regulations. Cities, of course, have, have 
complete control over local regulations unless for some reason the province wants to interfere. So I think a lot of the problem is indeed at the city level because you do see differences across the country. I mean, again, the Calgary example is telling. $450,000 per hectare in taxes and development fees hidden hidden from the consumer, but they show up in your, your new home price, and that's double neighboring communities around here. So that's the kind of thing that uh, the local level does have control over. I mean, I would say this as well. Um, I mean, the big picture is this. We Again, we, we recommend at the federal level that, sure, the federal government could reduce the, the GST uh, by raising the GST threshold in new homes from 450000 to 750000 And, um, I mean, the question there would be, well, can governments afford the revenue hit? Can they, can they afford to reduce the taxes? I think it's important to put this in a big picture, which, which I do in the report for Second Street. Taxes as a percentage of GDP in this country, all levels, amount to 42%. The G7 average is 36%. Pretty civilized place like Japan, taxes are 35% of GDP. There is room to reduce tax to reduce taxes in this country, and uh, given the price of homes, that might be one of the first places where governments want to look and start. Japan's an interesting example when it comes to housing, which might surprise a lot of people given that it's comparatively small, at least you know compared to a country like Canada, but they seem to have a pretty good balance in, in managing to, to provide the uh, supply to meet the demand. I mean, even in, in a lot of markets in the United States, there, there seems to be a lot more sanity. So it's not as though you know this, this kind of a situation like we have in Canada is inevitable, is it? No, it's not, and that's that's encouraging, uh, the examples of those countries. Now, again, Japan may be a unique case, you could argue. There's not a high level of immigration into Japan, so you don't necessarily see the demand spikes you would in, mm-hmm. say, Toronto or Vancouver, right? Um, you know, historically, of course, Vancouver has been almost booming continually since the 1980s when people started to move from Hong Kong to Vancouver out of concern for what just happened in the last couple of years in Hong Kong. And you have continuing immigration flows from East Asia, uh, quite rightly, I would argue, uh, for that and other reasons. Nonetheless, uh, so, so Japan doesn't have that. Nonetheless, there are U.S. cities, of course, that are much more inexpensive than Canadian cities uh, that are, you know, similarly sized. So again, part of this does fall on the local government and their inability or unwillingness to really address taxes and fees at the local level. And part of that is an overall spending problem. I mean, you and I have talked over the years about um, the lack of discipline, say, at, at various spending levels of government. But I would argue that cities are probably one of the least examined uh, parts of government in Canada and should be more examined for their spending patterns and the kind of deals they make with uh, government employee unions and the rest. Um, those eventually add up to ever higher taxes and fees, and again, often hidden ones, as you see uh, placed on development. So that, that is part of the problem vis-a-vis other jurisdictions around the world. Very interesting. As mentioned, the study, it's up at secondstreet.org. Mark, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Rob. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, Mark Milkey, the author of this report for the think tank Second Street, secondstreet.org. He's a policy analyst, author, columnist, executive director as well of the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy, new Canadian think tank uh, launching later this year. So your thoughts on what you think government needs to do to address uh, the housing cost issue? Do we just let these market corrections try to fix the problem? Do we try to encourage people to look elsewhere for housing? Stop trying to buy a house in Toronto or Vancouver or other big cities. Look elsewhere. Look to smaller communities. Uh, Or do we take some steps on the policy side to address this? Are, Are governments making the problem worse, either by adding to the cost of housing or by preventing new housing from being built?
Welcome back. Well, the situation in Ukraine is, is far from settled. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, we're, we're in an important phase of this uh, where with enough support, perhaps Ukraine can push back this Russian invasion. And to be able to achieve that would be hugely significant, not just for Ukraine's future uh, and not just a blow to, to Vladimir Putin and his aspirations, but, but a message to the rest of the world. Uh, about, you know, standing up to this kind of aggression and the international community's uh, willingness to also come together to stand up against this aggression. But the fact that that a Ukraine victory, or at least, you know, a, a, a Russian failure here is is still a possibility is is quite remarkable when you take a step back and think about it. You know, early on, when we saw the amount of firepower Russia was amassing on Ukraine's border, uh, it was pretty clear that, uh, you know, Russia had some some lofty aspirations about how this was all going to go. And their intent was, you know, to resolve this within days, uh, to march on Kiev, to overthrow the government, to basically have the country under control in short order. That hasn't happened. Part of that is due to Ukraine's resilience, obviously support from the international community. But it also represents, I think, you know, fair to say at this point even still, a failure on Russia's part. Now, maybe it's a commentary on the state of the Russian forces. Uh, but perhaps there's a more strategic element to all of this, or to put it simply, bad planning. There's an interesting op-ed in today's Globe and Mail looking at why this, this Russian invasion has gone so poorly. Now, joining us uh, to talk a bit more about uh, kind of the conclusions we can draw at this point. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the author of that piece. Uh, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Stephanie Carvin, who's an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, contributing author to the Center for International Governance Innovation, a former national security analyst. Professor Carvin, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me back on. Right. And it would be premature, I think, at this point to say that Russia has failed, uh, yeah. that it certainly, you know, has not gone according to plan. How, how do you assess where things are at right now, first of all? So that's a great question. And um, I mean, it might be less important for me where, where things are going. And, and I, I wonder how Putin thinks things are going, right? Because I think there's always been this debate as to whether or not, you know, he's being told the truth as, as to how things are going now. He must, he must have some idea because I think the original plan was that, you know, the, you know, Russian special forces would go into Ukraine. Uh, everyone, uh, you know, Putin, but also, you know, most Western commentators thought Ukraine had maybe 72 hours to withstand um, a, a, an assault and then it would kind of be over with, right? And, and Russia would probably win. And that is absolutely not what happened, right? And so it's, you know, this, this original plan to kind of, Seize uh, the capital of Kiev, and then um, you know, kind of take over parts of the, either either the entire country or at least the um, uh, you know the, a chunk of, of the western part of the country would be what was kind of was expected, but it didn't happen. And so we have seen Russian goals change over time. Um, really, as of April, it kind of switched from taking over the whole country to maybe just kind of taking over um, some of the provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, you know, they've done, uh, they've pretty much taken all of Luhansk now, but um, there's still a very much a fight going on for, for Donetsk, although even that now seems to have lost some steam. And what we're all anticipating, although, you know, 
things are changing. The most important lesson here is that war is always contingent. But we're expecting um, something to happen in the south, in particular the Kyrgyzstan region, which is um, near the, the, the Black Sea, and it's a major city. And uh, that the idea that Ukraine is going to try and take it back before Russia can hold a referendum to basically have it uh, become you know, like kind of a phony referendum, of course, where 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 that part of Russia uh, of Ukraine would, you know, d- decide somehow through a referendum to to join Russia. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, the Russians don't seem to be capable of a major uh, offensive operation at this time, but it's also uncertain if the Ukrainians can do it as well. To what extent, though, did, you know, the the international community or Western observers misread or misjudge uh, the the strength and the capability of Russian forces? What what conclusions were drawn uh, after 2014? You know, that's such a great question because, you know, there was so so what happened was uh, really it starts in 2008 when Russia went into Georgia. Right. Russia, unfortunately, has a history of invading its neighbors lately. Um, And it didn't you know, even though Russia was able to kind of achieve its objectives, it didn't go very well. So there was this new modernization effort in Russia and they called it the new look. Right. And they put all this emphasis on kind of shiny objects and new uh, electronic warfare capabilities, new, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, missiles, new, um, you know, jets, all these kinds of things, and really modernizing the army. And so I think people thought that, that Russia was doing well. Now, and then you add on top of that, right, Russian information warfare, which, you know, I think I've been on your show and talked about before which is, of course, Russian interference in, in the U.S. election and other elections around the world. And they've been doing a pretty good job of it. So, And then if you add a third layer there of the cyber, mm-hmm. you know, every, you know, Russia is probably just behind China when it comes to engaging in, in cyber attacks and cyber espionage. A lot of the cyber ransomware attacks originate in Russia. So I think that everyone thought, you know, you combine all of this together and you have a pretty significant military. And so when we see the kind of failure of the kind of 72-hour conflict that um, Putin had in mind, but also kind of the, the failure to really achieve most of its military objectives, even as it, let's face it, it is still occupying large swaths of Ukraine, um, has, has been really interesting. And I think there's been a lot of uh, questioning. And, you know, I'm going to return to one of my favorite military analysts on this because I think he's really, really realistic. He goes by the name of um, uh, Michael Kaufman, and, and he's an American. He's actually, I think, Ukrainian by birth, but he's, he's very much American. And he always says, you know, for a long time, I had to try and convince people that the Russians aren't 12 feet tall. But now my job is to convince them that they're not four feet tall either, right? They're, they're probably, you know, there's still a substantial military force, but the problem is, and, and this is the what I tried to get to in that, that op-ed that, that you referenced, is that the problem isn't necessarily that Russia has a bad army. It just doesn't seem to know how to use it. Um, part of the problem was, and possibly because Putin is a paranoid person, he didn't plan uh, or share his plan with the Russian army. Um, only very few people knew about this plan to actually invade Ukraine. And there's so, you know, there's a lot of stories that a lot of Russian soldiers were walking in, into Ukraine, not realizing that they were actually even part of an invasion force. So a lot of the planning, a lot of the details that would go into, you know, an invasion, a military invasion, weren't actually there. Right. And so, uh, you know, maybe Putin had put too much belief into his, you know, 
cyber capabilities, information warfare capabilities, um, didn't think the West would get its act together as quickly as it did, kind of thought the military could just kind of roll with the punches, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and none of that actually happened. So the Russian military force, I don't, I don't want to denigrate it too much. Um, it's, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we are seeing a lot of um, Soviet-era equipment being trucked out. Um, and, uh, but, but its real problem right now is probably manpower, not technology. Well, and two things come up. I mean, you know, there's there's that whole question of morale uh, and, yeah. you know, whether Russian, you know, the frontline troops understand the point of all of this and how that's affecting, uh, you know, the, the strategic side of it. And also, you know, whether the sanctions are, are preventing, you know, Russia from making repairs, resupplying. So have those two factors been been a part of this story then? I think morale is part of it. Certainly, at least in the beginning part of the conflict, I would say in March through to about mid-April, I think things have changed a little bit in the sense that, you know, I think Putin realized or people around Putin realized, okay, this this idea of a special military operation, even though that's what they're still calling it, uh, is not going to be a 72-hour thing. It's going to be a, a major conflict. And so the military has come in, and that's why we have seen some improvements with regards to uh, Russian ability to to gain uh, territory, particularly in the, in the um, sorry, in, in, in Donetsk and Luhansk. So I think that's um, really, really uh, important and um, uh, to, to kind of remember. But uh, so I think morale is becoming, uh, you know, on the one hand, like Ukraine is fighting for something, right? They're fighting for their survival. But they, too, have taken uh, tens of thousands of, of casualties and deaths, and, and it, it is really hard on them as well. So I don't think we should um, just assume that they have uh, all of the, the good morale on their side. I mean, they've, they've been facing some pretty bleak days in recent months. Um, with regard, your second question was sorry, uh, on the on the ability to, to either you know repair damaged equipment, resupply ah. those troops, and the impact of, of the sanctions. Really interesting question. The fact that we are seeing, you know, we've seen Russia take a lot of its military equipment out of storage and truck it across the country. We've seen them take military equipment from Belarus, right, um, and perhaps to, to put in the fight as well. And the sanctions that, you know, there's a really uh, vigorous debate right now. I mean, the fact is that, you know, the Russian economy has not collapsed. I, it is in danger, right? It, it can't withstand this long term, and it's effectively been cut off from the West and um, for, for most other suppliers, including Chinese suppliers, because they don't want to run afoul of, of some of these Western sanctions. So that, that's going to be really interesting. So it seems to have, an, the sanctions seem to be having an uneven impact in the sense that, you know, car, the, probably the, the most affected is their automobile manufacturing. Um, they, you know, they're, they're now making cars without air conditioning, in some cases with, with substandard brakes and things like this. So that's not great, um, but uh, at least for Russian consumers. Um, but other parts of the economy seem to be doing okay. Uh, you know, people point to the fact that, you know, they still have lots of money from oil and gas and things like this. But I'm less concerned about them having money and more concerned with, you know, as your question suggests, is are they actually able to buy and get the components that they need? Reuters had a report out today suggesting that they have been fairly successful in smuggling in some of the parts that they need. But, you know, if we can kind of block these off, they are going to run into, into trouble with regards to getting um, the kind of chips and devices that you actually need in order to 
uh, have guided missile systems, sophisticated military equipment and things like that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in the fall. That's what I'm going to be looking for. The fall, you know, everyone will be back from summer vacation. What do the stores look like? What do the shops look like? Uh, what does the winter look like for, for Russia? So that's going to be a really interesting question going forward. Um, but right now, uh, I think Russia is just very happy to, okay, if we run out of smart bombs, we're just going to, you know, pound Ukraine with our dumb bombs. And that's not great for civilians, right? Like, that's, that's where a lot of those casualties come from. So, you know, in some ways, it's, it's good that we can cut them off from those smart weapons. But and if it does mean in the long term that... Um, it does mean in the long term that, you know, they will be using, quote unquote, dumb bombs, um, which can which have probably deteriorated over time because they probably haven't been, you know, the type of Soviet era. But uh, also they, they could potentially um, um, impact civilians in, in a worse way. So important points. We'll leave it there for now. As mentioned, this op-ed, uh, today's Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. Stephanie Carvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate the insight. Hey, thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, that is Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Well, tomorrow is the kickoff of the World Junior Hockey Championships, which is unusual given that it's August and not December. I think part of why the World Juniors have become so big, it's a bit of a, like a Christmas tradition for Canadians. A little bit of a lull in the NHL schedule and, and something for hockey fans to get excited about. And certainly I think to some extent, you know, TSN, played a big role in that and, and having the rights to this tournament, really marketing it and building it into something big. And, you know, watch the stars of tomorrow, today kind of thing. Now, the World Juniors uh, were derailed uh, this past year, as you probably recall, uh, due to COVID. After uh, some teams were hit with outbreaks, officials made the decision just to pull the plug on the tournament. And the plan was to hold it in the summer. Now, since then... Between uh, December slash January and now, a lot's happened in the world of hockey. And Hockey Canada, obviously, is uh, dealing with uh, numerous scandals and controversies. And and some of that involving past world junior teams. Allegations uh, of sexual assault involving some members of the 2018 world junior team. Allegations that have surfaced uh, about sexual assault involving members of the 2003 world junior team. Is, Is that casting a shadow on this event? For whatever reason, interest, ticket sales uh, for this World Junior Tournament are way down. There are thousands of tickets that are unsold for this tournament. And compared to you know, how Canadian fans have gobbled up those tickets in the past, something's really different this time. Now, again, it's, it's August. That's not typically when this tournament would be. Maybe people are a little checked out when it comes to the game of hockey. Uh, Some of the big names on Team Canada that were there uh, back in December have opted instead to get ready for their various training camps. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe not the same kind of star power. And yeah, there's the cost of of traveling and everything else. Maybe that's discouraging some fans from outside of the Edmonton area for buying tickets and uh, booking hotels and all of that sort of thing. But yes, maybe there is that factor that this Hockey Canada situation has spilled over and maybe that's affecting 
the interest of Canadian fans in, in a tournament that's not run by Hockey Canada. It's a double IHF tournament, but obviously Hockey Canada is responsible for putting on the tournament to being the host country. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about what we make of all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Dan Mason, a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Professor Mason, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again. So I don't know if there's any one factor we can point to, and maybe it's a combination of, of, of all of the above, as, as mentioned, but let me just get your thoughts on, on what you make of this situation, first of all. Well, I think you really covered all the bases with your, your intro there. I think that the, obviously the timing of the event is probably the, the biggest factor because you've got people that only have so much money to go around and they're, they've earmarked that money for, for things other than hockey, and so they're doing summertime things and going to the, the lake and, and uh, the mountains and spending time outside or going to some of the festivals and those kinds of things. So I think it's really, really difficult to compare the event now with the event as it's typically held over the Christmas break. Yeah, I think when people are used to something being at a certain time of year, uh, you know, if, if it's not that time of year, it's just it doesn't it doesn't feel right. It's, you know, it's it's hard to get that kind of interest. And it would probably be the same for a lot of other uh, kinds of big sporting events if they're typically at one time of the year to try to do it in another time is, is kind of awkward. So, you know, it's still the world juniors, though. Is it just you think it's it's summer, people are at the lake, people are vacationing, they're just they're not plugged into what's going on in hockey? Um, I think there's that diehard fans that are going to figure out a way to, to make it work. But you've got a lot of casual fans who may have bought tickets because they were visiting family over the break or the holiday break and that sort of thing. And I think we need to remember that in a lot of cases, not just uh, in terms of attendance, but in terms of viewership on television, uh, TSN has developed a sort of captive audience because yeah. a lot of people have set time aside to visit family over the, the holiday break. And now, you know, they've got something to watch and it's become a tradition to watch it with your family. And so the timing of that just doesn't exist in, in, in the way it's being held right now. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, you know, there is the whole situation around Hockey Canada and how they've dealt with allegations of, of sexual assault in the past and, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of questions and a big cloud hanging over Hockey Canada. You know, these players that are going to be a part of this tournament aren't, aren't to blame for any of that, but do, do you think that there's kind of a spillover effect here that unease or discomfort with Hockey Canada is maybe affecting interest in this tournament? Yeah, and I think we also need to consider... Um, how Hockey Canada may be approaching the, the hosting of this event. And so if they were to go out and have a big marketing blitz and, and to really push to sell tickets, I think that that would actually, you know, potentially backfire with yeah. fans or, or with taxpayers who see, you know, we've got this issue with the scandal going on and we don't know exactly what uh, is going to come out of this investigation. And here you are pushing these tickets. And so, uh, no, for all we know, Hockey Canada is sort of taking a step back and, and sort of approaching this more from a, the perspective of just hosting these players and, and having these players engage in the tournament rather than selling tickets and, and selling out. And that's sort of thing. And it puts officials in, in Edmonton in kind of an awkward situation. I mean, obviously, there's a desire for Canadian markets, Canadian cities to, to be a host city for a tournament like this. Um, but now with all of that going on, I mean, there was a quote from the CEO of Explore Edmonton. Uh, she says, as the host city for the upcoming tournament, we continue to have discussions with Hockey Canada officials about their plans to address the need for change. So as a host city, some of this is kind of spilling over to Edmonton. But I mean, first of all, in terms of uh, a tourism driver, in terms of an economic impact, how would you measure this, you know, a tournament like this in, a, in a, under normal circumstances? 
Well, I think we need to always consider that it's usually proponents of these kinds of events that are pushing these economic impact numbers. And so I think that Edmonton's probably not being hurt as badly as you might think by virtue of there not being as many people coming in. Having said that, though, I think with the World Juniors, I think you do get, you would get people who would be coming in from outside of, certainly within the province, to come in to, to watch games and that kind of thing. So there would be, a, you know, obviously a positive economic impact. But I don't think really it's, it's anything that's going to be large enough to sort of hurt the city of Edmonton uh, sort of thing. Right. And I mean, you know, in, in any given summer in, in Edmonton, there's, there's a lot going on, various festivals, various tourist attractions. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's still kind of a pandemic time. But, you know, in terms of overall tourism in and around Edmonton, would the World Juniors make much of an impact? No, I don't think so. And I think that it's, uh, you know, you hit, hit the nail on the head in that there are other things going on and other things that people have already made plans to do. And so it's really a sort of a, a zero sum game where you would just be not doing something else that would be driving tourism in order to do the World Juniors. So it's kind of a wash for the city of Edmonton. Interesting. Well, we'll see how it all plays out uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks here. Yeah, Dan Mason, appreciate your perspective. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's Dan Mason, a professor of the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. So in terms of overall tourism impact, maybe some of that's overstated. But at the same time, too, if you were the city of Edmonton or Explore Edmonton, which is responsible for promoting tourism, like you want Hockey Canada to be promoting the hell out of this. And I think, you know, Dan made a good point that you know, Hockey Canada probably feels like they need to hold back a little bit uh, because of everything going on with them. So if they're not promoting this as much and you got a, a whole bunch of big corporate uh, partners that have pulled out of their sponsorship agreements, that takes away a lot of the marketing around all of this. And so it puts Edmonton officials in an awkward position. Are they supposed to be the ones to pick up the ball and promote this tournament? You know, this this is Hockey Canada's deal, right? So I think all of that does come into play. So I don't know if it's directly that people are like, oh, I'm disgusted with Hockey Canada and how they've dealt with all of this, I'm boycotting the World Juniors. I don't know if that's going on. But I think the spillover effect and the cloud over Hockey Canada right now, the, the corporate sponsors that have pulled out, it, it's difficult and awkward for Hockey Canada to be marketing this like they normally would and absent that marketing. Maybe people aren't just even aware that this is going on. Like you got a text here says it's probably more the fact that we have a short, warm season. People would rather be outside and doing things than watching a hockey game. You know, maybe. I think in the past there have been summer events that have drawn the attention of people, like when they did the World Cup of Hockey or the Canada Cup. I mean, the 72 series. I guess that was technically September. But, you know, if it's big enough, people are going to pay attention. So I don't know if that's enough to explain all of this, but it's a factor. Like someone else here says, I had tickets for every single game at Christmas time in both cities. I didn't want a package for this event because I don't want to be on a hockey rink in the middle of summer. So, sure, that's a part of it, right? This isn't typically when this tournament would be. People are typically thinking about the World Juniors at this time of year. We're conditioned to associate it with, you know, Christmas and the New Year. You know, the NHL season takes a bit of a break. You got some time off from work or school, whatever, and the World Juniors are on. And there's really nothing else competing with it. And it it has that that little niche there. And people get into it. 
that's when we're conditioned to think about it. So I think that's a big factor. I mentioned as well some of the big-name players who were a part of the, the team back in uh, December have opted not to play in this, instead choosing to focus on getting ready for you know, various training camps. But I think maybe to some extent, maybe they're disassociating themselves from, from Hockey Canada. I don't think you can separate that. I think that is the elephant in the room. I think some of this cloud over Hockey Canada is a factor here. Like, what else, what else is it? Are we overlooking another factor here? Like, yeah, there's, we mentioned the cost of travel. That may be a factor for a lot of people. People maybe already made their summer plans. So we'll see. It's not as though these buildings are going to be empty. It's not as though the TV ratings are going to be zero. <laughs> like, there will still be some interest. It is still the World Juniors after all, but it's, it's certainly different. That's for sure. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.